Me lord, upon what do you wish to dine this evening? I desire something simple tonight. A hamburger. A what? You know, a burger. Ground up beef wadded into a patty and then grilled. But you said ham. But it's actually beef. Try to stay with me here, kid. Uh. And on the side, I'd like some fried potatoes. But. Potato? Yes, potato! Boil them, mash them, stick them in a stew! Only in this case, I want them stuck into a big vat of hot oil. What is so hard about this? We're not magicians, me lord. We can't make fictional foods. They're not fictional! They're just to cross an ocean on a landmass that you don't even know exists yet. It is simple! God, no one is good at their jobs. Greetings upon the internet. Welcome to Ye Olde Food Theory, the show that strives for the authentic medieval YouTube experience. Remembereth to send your small scribe to ring the towny bell and send a missive to the Lord of Comments, leaving a five-star review. Yeah, just in case you didn't know, YouTube used to have a five-star rating system instead of likes and dislikes. The more you know. Okay, so despite our efforts to be totally historically accurate, it's possible that some things occasionally slip through the cracks, like how YouTube wasn't invented until 2005. Maybe a YouTube video isn't the best place for creating a feeling of ambiance like being in medieval times. But you know what is the best place for creating the ambiance of being in medieval times? Medieval times! The US-based theme restaurant that transports diners back in time to experience all the food, all the sights, and all the drama of feasting while at a medieval tournament of champions. Authenticity is a key selling feature for this chain. Employees are instructed to almost never break character for any reason. Diners are outright served without silverware to replicate that medieval dining experience. You know what that means, friends? This restaurant was basically one big old flashing red sign saying Matt Pat fight me. So is medieval times actually the authentic medieval dining experience? Saddle up theorists. Today's episode is gonna be a bloodbath. To begin let's determine where and when the story of medieval times is meant to take place. The medieval ages also known as the middle ages are a period of history lasting roughly a thousand years starting with the fall of Rome and lasting until the Italian Renaissance. So really claiming something is medieval is about as non-specific as you get. A thousand years is a long time in history. Thank Thankfully, though, we can actually narrow it down to a specific century and region. You see, while Medieval Times seems to be one of the most American-themed restaurants to ever America, its origins actually trace back to Spain. Back in 1983, Medieval Times' founder, Jose Montaner, converted his family-owned restaurant into a type of dinner theater, where audiences could feast while watching his family's history, which traced back to the 11th century. And indeed, it's there, in 11th century Spain, that the original Medieval Times stories were set. There was a time, long ago, when a wise king sat upon a mighty throne. For many years, his realm grew and prospered, and the people lived under skies of peace and plenty. Yet there came a day when the rumor of war reached the ear of the king. He gathered his finest knights about him. As the day neared its end, the king, his brother the prince, and six of his bravest knights repulsed the final charge of the enemy. The day was won, but with the death of the prince, the kingdom was without a champion. That said, Medieval Times does update its story every few years, so it's possible that they might have migrated forward in time a bit. As such, I'm gonna give them a bunch of wiggle room. Let's say between the years 950 and 1250. This means, even if we're assuming the latest possible date here, Medieval Times still should be happening about 200 years before Columbus sailed the ocean blue, starting the massive cultural and economic upheaval that would eventually be known as the Columbian Exchange. And I call that event out specifically for good 
reason. You see, it's hard to overstate just how much of a cultural influence the Columbian Exchange had on the world at large. History classes usually only focus on the flow of colonists from Europe to the Americas, but the newly opened trade passages meant that plants, animals, diseases, and fungi were finding new homes in far-flung corners of the planet as boats and people constantly sailed back and forth across the Atlantic. This meant things like the introduction of brand new ingredients to European chefs. Things like sugar, chocolate, vanilla, all of that came into play in a brand new way and forever changed the way that recipes were designed. But even existing ingredients would transform as a result of all this. Sure, Europe had things like strawberries before the Columbian Exchange, but they were very small. But then, these global explorers suddenly discover massive strawberries just growing in modern-day Chile and Peru. The conquistadors bring them back to Europe and start hybridizing them with the home breeds. Stack on another 600 or so years of innovation, scientific discovery, and selective breeding, and suddenly you have yourself a fruit that would almost be unrecognizable to a medieval European. So, just right off the bat, living in the post-Columbian exchange world is gonna make our food inauthentic tasting. The food that exists today, it's just gonna taste better nine times out of ten because our ingredients have the benefit of selective breeding and engineering. Also falling into the tastes inauthentic category are the drinks. I promise you, I scoured the internet searching for some kind of scholarly article about 11th century Spaniards adding lemon and lime juice to spring water, thereby creating a proto-sprite, as it were. But alas, nobody in medieval Europe was drinking anything close to what we'd call a soda. Instead, many of the nobility would have been drinking wine and ale. So let's just start off the wine, shall we? Modern wine is a triumph of venting and science that would be utterly baffling to even the most masterful winemaker back in the Middle Ages. Yeast, the magic little fungi that digivolves boring old grape juice into palatable alcoholic wine, wasn't discovered as an individual organism until 1680. Before then, people had no idea what mechanism actually created the alcoholic flavor and effect. As a result, they would just take rotten grape juice and throw random stuff into it until it tasted okay. Winemaking was just a complete gamble here. They were trying anything from other fruit juices to herbs and spices to even powdered marble trying to make it taste palatable. It was also thicker than the wine of today, so, you know, enjoy drinking your fermented grape sludge fortified with powdered rock. Bottoms up! Similarly, the ale that you could find in medieval taverns would be nothing like modern beer. Almost all modern beers use fresh cloned yeast as their base, which gives them a clean, light finish. Before the discovery of yeast, though, brewers had to rely on dregs from previous batches to serve as a yeast starter for their next brew, a lot like how a mother dough is used to bake sourdough. That means that beer in the medieval era would have had a flat, sour taste. In fact, this method is still used today, but it's used to create a very specific variety of beer known as exactly that, a sour. Back to the point, though, if you really do want the most authentic medieval beverage experience, just order yourself a sour beer and then let it sit for about an hour or so before you drink it. Beyond that, hops, a key ingredient in most modern beers, didn't become a popular additive until the 12th century, so a bit too late for our purposes today. Hops adds a sharp, bitter taste to the beer, but more importantly, it acts as a preservative, allowing modern beers to have a shelf life of months, whereas medieval beer would have gone bad rather quickly. But even if you actively brewed using old yeast and used no hops, you're still likely getting a much cleaner, lighter tasting beer today, because nowadays we have stainless steel brewing kettles, we have filters, thermometers, clean aged barrels. Compare all of that to the old wooden kegs and iron pots of Yoldi times, and you can see that nowadays it's just a completely different food world. So the beer and wine might have had themselves a radically different taste from the Middle Ages, but at least they would have been there on the table. The food, on the other hand, well, it's just impossible. I couldn't find a single meal on the Medieval Times menu that was even possible to get in Medieval Spain. We'll start off with the very first course for all attendees, tomato bisque. Tomatoes are delicious and are considered to be a staple of modern European foods, especially Italian food. But before the Columbian Exchange, tomatoes weren't available in Europe at all. Tomatoes are indigenous to South America, and as a result, they weren't grown in 
Britain until the 1590s. Some researchers actually credit the Spanish conquistador Hernán Cortés with bringing the seeds to Europe in 1519. And even then, people were still afraid of them. When Europeans first saw tomato leaves, they recognized them as being related to nightshade, a poisonous plant. That then made Europeans skeptical of eating tomatoes for a long time. Meaning that even after the Columbian Exchange, it still took an additional 200 years for tomatoes to actually catch on as a food. That makes the bowl of tomato bisque that starts your medieval times meal about as historically accurate as giving a knight a musket. The next course is probably the most historically accurate, the salad. Everyone from the lowliest peasants to the richest noble would certainly have eaten their fair share of salads back in the Middle Ages, because meat was just expensive and difficult to produce. As a result, meat was reserved mostly for special occasions unless you were very well off. And even then, the powerful Catholic Church banned eating meat or even animal products on Fridays, Saturdays, and Wednesdays. That's right, in the Middle Ages, even the most powerful of noble was vegan three times a week. So a salad isn't out of place here at all. Might as well give Medieval Times a point for this one, because it is honestly the only point they're getting this episode. Moving on to the main course, we've got ourselves a few options. A half chicken, some barbecue pork ribs, kielbasa sausage, and a vegetarian hummus plate. So let's just go down the line, shall we? The half roasted chicken? It's probably the most realistic option of the bunch. Chickens first arrived in Europe via trade around 800 BC, so it's perfectly reasonable to think that Europeans were cooking and eating chickens in the 11th century. And because they were relatively easy to raise and slaughter, they presented a viable food option. That said, chickens weren't as common as beef or pork because they required more care and attention than your typical pig or cow. As a result, chickens were often reserved for special occasions like feasts or holidays. Pigs, also viable on the tasting menu. They were domesticated thousands of years ago, so it's not unreasonable to think that our medieval feast would have had some pork ribs. Sure, their barbecue sauce wouldn't have been loaded with sugar and tomato paste like modern barbecue sauces, but they would season their meats with spices and wine, so pretty darn close. Considering how loose the definition of barbecue sauce can get sometimes, I'm gonna count it. The third choice of meat, though, that right there is the clear deal breaker. The kielbasa sausage was an invention of 14th century Poland, putting it two to three centuries ahead of where we're at in history. That said, though, sausage itself is ancient, and some form of a sausage dish would have been popular in 11th century Spain. There was a popular Roman pork sausage named Luconica that might have held the top spot in Spain around this time, so not quite kielbasa, but still something close. No, in this case, the vegetarian option is the clear loser of the bunch. The hummus plate? That just ain't happening. On the one hand, dishes involving chickpeas, lentils, lemon juice, and garlic go back for thousands of years. On the other hand, the first recipe known for anything resembling hummus comes from the 13th century. And even then, it is barely what we'd call hummus today. At the end of the process, the 13th century hummus was rolled thin and then left to dry all night. Doesn't exactly sound like the kind of soft dip that we'd be expecting to get served as part of our kingly feast. But of them all, it's not actually the main part of the main course that makes all of these impossible. Rather, it's the side dish, the roasted potatoes. Now, when you think of potatoes, you probably think of the Irish, right? And the great potato famine that depopulated the country so badly that it still hasn't been able to recover to a population larger than its 1840 peak. But believe it or not, potatoes didn't originate in Ireland, nor did they originate in Russia where they make vodka this stuff. Instead, the potato has its origins in the Andes Mountains of South America. Yeah, I was shocked by that fact too. Believe it or not, potatoes didn't make it over to Europe until the late 16th century. It seems crazy to say, but the stereotype of a poor European potato farmer? That's a new stereotype. As recently as 400 years ago, potatoes were still a complete mystery to Europeans. You know what else was a mystery to them? Corn, another staple food item that was introduced to Europe as part of the Colombian exchange. Jeez. 
Jeez. When you look at the food roster here, it seems like all the most delicious stuff was over in the Americas. It's kinda like the worst kind of video game. All the best bits were locked behind this massive paywall. Sure, potatoes are free to grab out of the dirt, and you can grow as much corn as you want. You're just gonna need to pay for a fleet of ships capable of crossing the ocean before you can get to any of this stuff. So basically, everything they give you at Medieval Times is not the accurate Middle Ages dining experience that they advertise it being. But you know what's even more ironic? Even the stuff they don't give you is inauthentic. At Medieval Times, one of the main selling features is this lack of silverware. Sure, you can ask for some if you need it, but the venue sells this idea that you can just eat with your hands like they did back in the olden days. Except, uh, th that's just not true. Sure, forks were fairly rare in Europe before the 14th century, but knives and spoons? Those things were everywhere. Most people would regularly use a knife with their meal for cutting, and a wooden spoon for eating things like soup. Sure, they would use their hands more often than a modern diner, but wasn't like medieval peasants had never seen cutlery before. But beyond that, Medieval Times pretends that all its audience members are nobles, and are therefore getting the best treatment. Well, if that's the case, it would have been expected in the Middle Ages for you to bring your own cutlery to a dinner engagement, in a box called a cadena. This would then give you a chance to show off the fancy knife and spoon that you had specially made up for you. If you were wealthy enough, these items may have been made of silver or even gold, while poor merchants trying to look richer than they were would get themselves a lead fork wrapped in gold leaf. So, on the one hand, it's not very authentic to have no silverware on the table in medieval times. On the other hand, it is authentic not to offer that silverware in general. That said, something tells me that the heavily armed security of medieval times might not appreciate me bringing a box with my own personal knife into a public space. Some people just don't appreciate historical accuracy. So, medieval times. The drinks are radically different. The recipes include items that wouldn't have even been known to people in the continent, and even their famous silverware policy is historically dubious. But honestly, if it means that I'm not having to drink a mouthful of powdered marble, I'm okay with that. This is medieval times. Great place to party. And disco after the show. Disco? They were encouraging you to disco after your jousting tournaments? With that commercial air. 1990? Oh boy, medieval times just missed all the time periods. But hey, all this talk about stale medieval mead has really gotten me thirsting for the sponsor of today's video, Air Up. Air Up catapults your water consumption into the 21st century with their state-of-the-art flavor pods. They sit on top of your bottle and trick your brain into thinking you're drinking flavored water, when in reality, it's all just plain no-calorie, no-sugar water. The scent is actually tricking our medieval brains into thinking that we're drinking a flavored beverage, when in fact, it's just a combination of water plus scent. Air Up has been a lifesaver for me as someone who drinks way more than their fair share of sugary, unhealthy sodas. After years of wanting to finally move to something more healthy, but being bored of regular water, Air Up swooped in to save the day. From their sleek-looking bottles to the variety of different flavor pods to pick from, they really brought me from a casual water imbiber to an advanced sipper. I just can't get enough of this thing. I take it and my wild berry flavor pod nearly everywhere I go, and if I eventually feel the need to get some regular water to remind myself of what the plebeians are tasting, I just pop that flavor pod down on the bottle, mute the scent, and BAM! I'm drinking regular unscented water again. This stuff is just truly brilliant. I could not recommend Air Up enough. And since variety is the spice of life, Air Up offers their favorite five pack which comes stocked with five of the best flavors they have. Orange Vanilla Swirl, Raspberry Lemonade, Watermelon Peach, and the aforementioned Wild Berry. You just can't go wrong. You will be guaranteed to find multiple flavors that you love. So, if this is wetting your whistle and you want to step into the 21st century of water drinkers, visit the link down in the description below to purchase your own bottle, and then use the code FREEFAV5, F-R-E-E-F-A-V-5, to score your own free favorite five variety pack with any starter order. Thank you again to Air Up for being such an awesome sponsor of all our videos, and as always, my friends, I will see you next week. Bon appétit.